Well, good morning again. Our uh, sermon text for this morning is Matthew 2, 1 through 12, which we have already read and heard together. Uh, So let me pray for us uh, before we talk about it together. Father, we ask now um, at the end of this season of Christmas that you would be happy to meet with us in the places where we are and talk to us in the language that we understand most clearly. That you'd meet um, with those of us this morning who feel far from you and distant from you, those of us who feel close to you, those of us who are in faith, those of us who are outside of faith, those of us who aren't sure. Father, show us the grace of your Son coming to us as one of us and change us by that grace again. And we prayed in his name. Amen. Well, as we have uh, seen and heard and said and prayed and sung this morning, we are uh, observing Epiphany. Um, That uh, day was actually on Friday, but we always like to celebrate it at the closest Sunday that we can. And that word uh, implies a sudden revelation of something that gets at the, the true meaning, that gets at the essence of that thing. And so in the church, Epiphany is the day that we remember and it's the day that we celebrate that Jesus' incarnation wasn't just for a few people far away a long time ago. This is the day where we remember and celebrate that Jesus' incarnation is for the whole world forever. In the New Testament lesson that Patrick just read, the Apostle Paul calls this, this thing, this epiphany, he calls it the mystery that was hidden for ages in God. I love that language. I love that idea. It's as if God has saved this best of all secrets for last. Right? He hinted at it through Abraham. He hinted at it in a few of the Psalms. He hinted at it again through the prophets. But then all at once... He just springs the unsearchable riches on everybody all at once, that Jesus is good news for the whole world. And that means that he is good news for you and for me right here, right now, this morning. And as we have already heard, this epiphany happens, this mystery gets revealed in a pretty unusual way. After Jesus was born, Matthew tells us in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And we have heard that line so many times. We've heard that line, I bet you, five times during the season of Advent. And so we hear it so many times, I think that my guess is that we don't hear the stark strangeness of it anymore. By my count... We've sung about it four times already this morning. And we typically hear that as part of the larger story that we tell during Advent, the larger story about angel choirs and swaddling cloths and shepherds and Mary pondering things in her heart. So it's pretty easy for us to forget that none of that stuff is in Matthew's Gospel. The story of Jesus' birth in Matthew starts off hard. Starts off with Joseph, whose dreams of a normal family life get wrecked into a thousand pieces. And then right after that is this. The wise men from the east have made their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus has already been born. So 
who in the world are these guys? Well, the word that gets translated as wise men is the word magi. They were a priestly class of men who specialized in astrology, in the interpretation of dreams, and occasionally in the magic arts. God's people would have heard about the Magi. They would have read about the Magi in the book of Daniel. If you're familiar with that story, you might remember that the Magi are the ones that King Nebuchadnezzar calls in to interpret his dreams. So just in case it isn't completely clear and obvious, let me make sure that we all know what's being set up here. These are not good Jewish kids. As a matter of fact, everything that they center their lives around, astrology and divination and magic, these things are all expressly forbidden by God for his people in the Old Testament. And on top of that, most scholars think that these men came from Babylon, which was, of course, the nation that had enslaved God's people and destroyed their lands and destroyed their temple. So the presence of this strange caravan snaking its way through the holy city would have been really, really weird. They were very likely, unlikely, very unexpected visitors to Jerusalem. And Matthew tells us that the whole city is troubled when they show up. So what in the world are they doing there? Why are they in Jerusalem? Well, these very unlikely visitors have a very unlikely reason to be there. This is what they ask Herod. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So part of the Magi's worldview was that when things happen in the night sky, they usually have corresponding realities here on earth. That may seem strange, uh, at least to most of us here, but if we're honest, we'll admit that there are traces of that worldview present all over the place. If you flip through the newspaper, past the horoscope, then you know there's a trace of that worldview still present in our world. And scholars have made all kinds of guesses at what the Magi must have seen in the night sky. Lots of ink has been spilled over this. You know, Halley's Comet made a pass around that time, and Jupiter and Saturn were aligned around that time, and Chinese astrologers recorded a nova around that time, and on and on. But for the sake of this story, I think it matters to us far less what they saw than the brute fact that they saw something. It wasn't a fluke, and it wasn't a coincidence. They saw something that made them think that a king had been born in Judea. And it was important enough to them for them to pack their bags and to put a gift list together and to go on a journey. Another way to say that is that God met them in the places where they were looking. God spoke to them in the language that they understood. And when he did that, he invited them on a journey to find Jesus and figure out who he was. So let me say something about that for those of us here this morning who aren't yet believers or or who are wondering about belief, or those of us here this morning who aren't yet sure what we believe. I just want to say this, that this, this is not an unusual tactic in God's arsenal. I think he's always doing things like this. 
quietly meeting people like us, even unlikely people like us, right where we are, whispering to us, speaking to us. He is whispering to people like us in that story that we read with the plot twist that we just can't get out of our head. He is in that really strange and compelling lyric from that song that you really like. He is whispering in between the lines on the results from the lab work that you got done when you saw your doctor last month. He is underneath that off-handed comment from the stranger on the L. I think God is poking around at people like us all the time in ways like this, and it was the English poet and opium addict, Francis Thompson, who famously called God the hound of heaven, chasing us with unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, and majestic instancy. I love that description, and it feels right. I don't think the question is ever, is God speaking to me? I think the question is always, what is he saying, and what should I do about it? Are these whispers, these echoes, these fragments of the other, are they just figments of our imagination? Are they just maps that lead us nowhere? Or, like they were for the wise men, are they a deeply fertile moor that leads us somewhere for our good? Then I say, pack your bags and get your gift list together and go on that journey. So that's what the Magi did, and and this is what they say to Herod. We want to worship the one who has been born king of the Jews. Not not you, Herod, the other one, the one who has been born. We thought he'd be here in the royal palace, but obviously we were wrong, so tell us where we should go to find him. And after that question, the Magi recede for a little while in the story, and it is Herod and the chief priests and the scribes who come more clearly into focus for us. Herod, of course, is the puppet king of Jerusalem. He was given power over that particularly troublesome region of the world by Rome in about A.D. 40. And the, I'm sorry, 40 B.C. And, and the older that Herod grew, um, the more paranoid Herod became. In fact, he killed his wife. He killed two of his sons because he was worried they might try to get his power from him. And this led Caesar, way off in Rome, to say that he would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. So it shouldn't surprise anyone that when Herod hears about a newborn king, he is greatly troubled. And I think that this is a really, really important part of the story. I mean, Jesus is an infant, but his presence is seen as a threat. Jesus has been nowhere near a throne in his life. And yet his kingdom is already unsettling to the powers that be. And church, nothing has changed about this one tiny bit in the millennia since this story was first told. Jesus and his kingdom always stand as a threat to even the most benevolent empires and rules. He is a genuine threat, a real threat to every prime minister 
every president, every premier that ever walked the earth and ever will, to say nothing of the despots and the dictators and the tyrants. And the reason that this is true is incredibly simple. Because Jesus' kingdom is the only true, just, and peaceable kingdom that this world has ever known or will ever know. His rule is the only rule that leads us perfectly into the kind of flourishing that we were made for as human beings. His rule is the only rule that leads to the kind of justice and peace that this world was created for in the first place. And it is the kingdom that will, at last, in the words of St. John, because of the self-giving love of the king, because this king gives his life up, this is the rule that will bring the healing of the nations and cause the end of tears and mourning and pain and death. And so this says something to all of us. This has something to say about our politics, no matter where we situate ourselves. This has something to say to every human ruler and their politics, no matter where they situate themselves. And that is this, that every human rule has a bracing and beautiful target that they need to aim for. And to the extent that any human rule doesn't look like Jesus' kingdom, it absolutely needs to change. It needs to be reformed. And church, this truth is latent in the prayer that we are going to pray together in just a few minutes. When we pray together, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we need to remember that these aren't just pious filler words that round out the prayer. These words are Jesus' politics. <laughs> and they must be our first allegiance if we are his followers. And that brings us back to the story and to Herod's most pressing problem at the moment, which is that he has no idea where this king is supposed to be born. He doesn't have the slightest clue where this king is to be born. So he calls the chief priests and the scribes, and he asks them straight up, where is the Christ to be born? Where's the Messiah to be born? Now, these guys are no real friends of Herod, but in order for them to stay in power, they have to conform to his agenda. So they lead him to the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. They say, Bethlehem, Herod. That, that's where this shepherd ruler of Israel is supposed to be born, Bethlehem. And weirdly... That is the last we hear of the chief priests and the scribes in this story. You know, the news, even if it's just a scrap of a rumor of news that a Messiah has been born, does not rate any further exploration from them. Their response to this news is to do exactly nothing. They don't even send a messenger the short five-mile hike to Bethlehem to find out if it's true. Herod, of course, is quite different. He plots to murder the child that's been born. He tells the Magi, go and find him. Tell me exactly where he is so that I can worship him. Of course, we all know it's so that he can kill him. Real Messiah or false, he wants no challengers to his power. So here are two reactions 
to the Incarnation. Here are two responses to Jesus coming as one of us for us. Indifference from the religious insiders and hostility from the powers that be. Jesus comes and he is met with indifference and hostility. And, of course, this is Matthew's big setup because he's inviting us to find our place in this story. And he couldn't set up a more stark contrast if he tried. For their part, the Magi set off to Bethlehem and they find no doubt to their surprise that the star appears again and it leads them until it rests over the place where Mary and Joseph and the baby are. God is whispering to them again in their language. He's drawn them, and now finally they're at the end of their journey, and there is no better way to tell what happens next than the way that Matthew does. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw Mary and the child, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they gave him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These strange visitors, these freakish (laughs) pagan astrologers, the ones who had been far from the promises and with no hope in this world, They fall down at the sight of the infant Jesus. And they worship him and they give him gifts that are fit for a king. And with them, you know, down there on their faces in front of Jesus, we start to get the story. We start to see how this story fits into the larger story, the true story of the world that God's been telling. We begin to see this makes sense in the story that has God saying to Abraham, Abraham, I know that you don't have a family, but through your family that's not even a family yet, all of the families of the earth are going to eventually be blessed. And then he says to this ragtag group of complete outsiders and messed up people, hey, I know you're not a nation yet. You're basically of no uh, repute at all. But through you as a nation, one day all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed. He says to his people through the prophet, even though darkness covers the whole earth, even though thick darkness covers all the peoples, I'm going to rise on you and nations will come to your dawn. Kings to the brightness of your dawn. And then you'll see and then you'll be radiant and then your heart will thrill and exalt. The visit of the Magi is God's way of making it completely clear that these ancient promises are being kept even in a way that no one could ever have dreamed up. The visit of the Magi is the first trickle of the promised flood that the entire world would hear the good news. We are here this morning because the Magi went that morning. the most unlikely people of all. Watch them fall down and worship Jesus.
the visit of the Magi is really, really good news. The visit of the Magi is good news for a world that is broken. It is good news for Turkey, and it's good news for Syria. It's good news for the Ivory Coast, where chaos and violence and destruction have fallen with the turn of the new year. It's good news because it reminds us that the king who was born king of the Jews is the true king of all of the world, and that this king is unlike other earthly powers. He is completely unlike any of the paranoid Herods that our world is full of. And he stands against violence, and he stands against oppression, and he stands against the chaos of darkness that is everywhere because of paranoid Herods. And it is a reminder to us, and it's a reminder to the broken world, that he has borne the curse of our violence on the cross, and he has defeated it. And a day is coming, a time is coming, when he will judge it finally and forever. And the visit of the Magi is good news to our beautiful and broken city, reeled again in the last few days with those shattering sounds and sights of brutality against the vulnerable. A scene of horror from the west side. And it is good news to us because it tells us that the west side and all of the people who live on the west side, they matter to God. He would do anything for the west side of Chicago, and he has. His news is good news for all the people, for the outsiders and for the poor and for the forgotten and for the vulnerable. And it is good news for the worst of the worst. And the visit of the Magi is good news for you and for me. It is good news for those of us who are sinners and who know it, and those of us who are sinners and pretending desperately that we aren't. It's good news to those of us who feel completely crushed by our own sin or the sin of others against us. The visit of the Magi is good news to us because it is a reminder to us that the infant to whom the Magi are bowing has a name. The angel told Joseph, Name him Jesus. Name him God saves. Because he will save his people from their sins. The visit of the Magi is very good news. And it is also an invitation. It's an invitation to find our own place in this story, even if it is with the most unlikely and strange characters in it. To bow in adoration at Jesus' feet. It is an invitation to gaze on the beauty of Jesus and to thrill and to exalt and to be radiant at the sight of God with us. Let me pray for us. Father, here we are on this day where we remember that you sprang the unsearchable riches on the whole world. And I ask that you would work in us as individuals and in us as a church, whatever it is you need to work, so that we do not meet him with indifference, so that we do not meet him with hostility, 
but rather we meet him with adoration. And that that worship would change us and grow in us more grace to live the life you have called us to live. Father, do this for our good and do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.